I think I've shared with you before, but when I was in high school, I worked as a ranch hand at a small cattle ranch in southeastern Oklahoma. Um, my brother's actually here. He's been to that little farm. Uh, the work was really hard. Uh, the summers were very hot. But to this day, I'm thankful for all the lessons that I learned over the years at that job. One of the most important lessons I think I learned from working on the ranch was how to have a good work ethic. My boss, the owner, was a high-ranking executive at an energy company on the other side of the state. And to have his recommendation would be worth all the hours of sweat and labor. It would pay off in the end. And he would come to the ranch to work with us most of the weekends. He would come to teach us how to work the tractor, how to saddle up a horse, how to take care of the cattle. But oftentimes, because of his high-level job, he would be out of pockets for weeks at a time. And so as one of the two ranch hands, it was my task to make sure that the things on the farm continued smoothly while he was gone. And since he never really told us when he was coming and when it was going, it was up to me to make sure I did my task regardless of when he was going to come or when he was going to stay away. I got to tell you, being on a ranch, there is nothing more terrifying than for the owner of the ranch to show up and catching you napping under the pecan trees. And there's nothing more joyful than the ranch owner coming back and finding you taking care of his animals, fixing his fences. I mean, it's hard work. There's a lot to do. Procrastination on a ranch is easily spotted. The pastures have to stay mowed in the summer, otherwise they'll grow wild with weeds. Fence lines have to stay sprayed or poison ivy vines will soon take over the entire section. The animals have to be fed. And in the dead heat of summer, if you don't water and feed them, you will be able to tell whether they've been fed and watered well. And some, like the big fat farm dog, had to be fed more often than others. <laughs> that's just a few of a week's worth of tasks, not to mention fixing broken fences, chasing down escaped cattle. We uh, would run down Highway 8 all the time, or Highway 9, whatever that highway was, trying to chase some stupid black calf that kept getting out. We'd have to move the herd from the kind of drier parts of the pastures to the taller pastures. We'd scare away coyotes and bobcats. That's probably the funnest part of the job. We'd repaint farmhouses and cut up broken trees and many, many, many other things. You know, if you miss a day, and those chores would begin to pile up. You miss two or three days, and the task list is almost irretrievable. It's, it's, it's just out of control at that point. You're having to hire extra farmhands to come and help you catch up. Now, those long summer days when the boss was gone, we weren't sure how long he would be gone. He had been gone for a couple weeks. We weren't sure when he was going to show up. The most tempting thing in the middle of those 100-degree summer days was to drive a tractor into the backfield, find an empty place by the pecan trees, and just take a long, extended nap. Nothing better. But we fought that temptation because the boss could come at any time. Because we had things to do. Working on a farm taught me two valuable lessons about the Christian life. Christians are to be prepared. We're to be ready for the boss's unexpected return. And number two, we have to be productive. Let's just say that this way. There is clear evidence when you procrastinate in the Christian life. 
Clear evidence. The weeds begin to grow. Idols begin popping up. People in your life begin shriveling from lack of care and lack of being fed. They begin showing their spiritual ribs because they haven't felt the warmth of God's people. Procrastination is easily seen in God's flock. And so, what does Jesus call us to do? As disciples, we must be prepared and we must be productive in light of his unexpected return. Now, before you think, I just want to call us all to humility for a minute. I like to think I'm the most prepared and productive person in this place. And it's that kind of mindset that proves that you're not. The moment you think you are as productive and as prepared as you should be, and it's everybody else that's got to get their act together, proves that you are actually unproductive and not prepared. This is a sermon for us as God's people to internalize, to personalize, not to look sideways at other people and decide how productive are they being. It's for us to ask the question, how productive am I being? How ready am I for the Lord's unexpected return? It's easy to cast judgment on others. But my friends, if we look at the ranch of your life, do we see wild weeds growing? Do we see shriveled animals, shriveled friends who have not had the care from you that they need? So I'm asking you in in the very beginning, not to make this a sermon about others, but to make this about you, your productivity. At the end of the day, You, not your neighbor, you, not the person sitting to the left of you, will stand before the Lord. And you will give an account for your preparation and your productivity. There's a number of things we don't know about Jesus' return, namely when. (laughs) We don't know a lot about what will happen on the way leading up to it. We know it's going to be violent and chaotic, and there's lots of craziness in the world on the way leading up to Jesus' return, but there's a lot we don't know, except we do know this. According to Matthew 24 and 25, there's going to be a seemingly long delay. It's not just going to happen immediately. At Matthew 24, 48, the wicked servant sees that his master is delayed. In the parable of the ten virgins, the bridegroom is delayed and the virgins fall asleep. In the parable of the talents, the master goes off on a long journey and is gone for a long time. So we're talking an extended delay. Now, the disciples in their day believed that Jesus could come back at any minute. And 2,000 years has been quite the delay. 2,000 years has been quite the long journey. And one of the greatest temptations in the midst of the master's delay is procrastination And laziness. That's one of the two things that we are most tempted by as God's people. We simply think that there will always be time to get ready for the Lord's coming. We think that there will always be time to finally get productive. We will do what we're supposed to do someday. Or worse yet, we trick ourselves into thinking that we're already doing what we should be doing. When in reality, our lives are completely unproductive. As many of foolish preachers and self-proclaimed prophets have shown over the years, it's no use trying to figure out when Christ returns. To put dates on it, there's nothing more foolish. To talk about and guess how many decades are left, how many years are left, 
There's nothing more dumb than to do that. Jesus says plainly, no one knows. He says bluntly, the angels of heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So I think there's a whole new level of pride to try to figure out the unfigureoutable. That's a new word. To, to figure out something that God has perpetually, intentionally hidden from your sight. The last days are not going to be this really clear moment in time, I don't think. We'll simply know it's happening when it happens. Jesus says as much. In the days of Noah, people will be eating, drinking, marrying, and going about their normal business. It'll be just a normal Monday. Everybody's just going to be going about milling around, doing their life, going about their normal nine to five day. And then the flood came and swept them all away. He says, in the same way, so people will be doing that same milling about, going about their daily lives when the Son of Man returns. One moment, people will be working in the fields, grinding mills as usual, and then suddenly one's taken and one's left. What exactly that means? I'm not absolutely clear on that. All I know is that I hope I'm on the good side of the being taken or left. Whichever it is, when the Son of Man comes back, it's going to happen quickly, suddenly. And Jesus' point is, you're not going to see it coming. It's going to be an indiscernible time. So what's the application? Stay awake. That's a simple command. Stay awake. Now, I love that that's in this passage, because now if I see you nodding during the sermon, I could say, stay awake. <laughs> and it absolutely applies. <laughs> stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Stay awake is a very suitable exhortation to us as a 21st century church, isn't it? We're 2002, uh, 2021 years since the Lord's departure, roundabout, give or take a few years, a few decades. And I feel like if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us would be honest that churches, Christians, modern day Christians have slumbered, we're prosperous, we're comfortable, we're at ease. And so it takes wisdom, it takes humility, it takes repentance to say, Wake up from that prosperity. Wake up from the ease. Wake up from the comfort. Wake up from the delay. Jesus could come back at any moment. It may not be in your lifetime, but you don't know that. It may not be today, but you don't know that. You are to live with this readiness, with this alertness, with this awakeness, knowing and not, not taking it for granted that there will always be time to do what the Lord has called you to do. Today is that day. And we, we don't like these kinds of sermons because we too often think of some guy wearing a judgment is coming cardboard box on a New York street corner calling fire and damnation down. But my friends, the fact that the Lord is returning is a truth that's well kept in scripture. And to live in the imminence and the impending nature of that return is very much everything that the disciples called us to. The apostles tell us to live as if that day is coming. So let me just tell you this. You may be one of three people. You may be someone who is awake and you know that Jesus is coming. Praise God. Stay awake. You may be someone who thinks you're awake and you need to be nudged out of your slumber. And you're going to have to be honest and open and humble 
about being that. It's far better to be nudged awake and realizing that you've been dozing off than for anyone to pretend that you have been awake this whole time. Finally, you may be someone who doesn't really even know Jesus. This may be the first time that you've actually heard a deep, detailed message of the gospel. This isn't a call for you to wake up. This is a call for you to rise up out of the grave, to find life in Jesus, knowing that the resurrection himself has come. The resurrection himself is bringing life on the final day. So you may be one of those three people, and I'll leave it to you to discern who you are. But we're going to look at those two points. Stay ready. Stay productive. Stay ready. Jesus' disciples are to stay ready. Even if it seems like Jesus' Jesus return is forever delayed. Feels like it just keeps being delayed. After Jesus says that his return would be unexpected, just as the flood came at a time when people were unaware, Jesus gives another analogy. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for when the Son of Man is come, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How nice would it be for us to have just kind of a radar that kind of predicts when our house is going to get broken into, right? Or, or what if we lived in the culture that thieves gave a courtesy call, just left a little note on your door to say, hey, by the way, expect me around 2 a.m.-ish. Man, Texans would love that, right? Lived in Texas long enough that y'all would be sitting at the front door. <laughs> That'd be like a party invitation for some of you. But that doesn't happen, does it? There's no courtesy calls. There's no little notes left on the door. Hey, I'm coming at 2 a.m. to rob your house. No, you have to be alert and aware. You have to be awake and ready for when the thief comes. As I've said many times, and as you guys have reminded me many times, I'm from Oklahoma. (laughs) And (laughs) as my brother can tell you, Summer is tornado season, and tornado season is always fun. We put up billboards to remind people it's tornado season. We have billboards dedicated to remind people to wear pajamas to bed. (laughs) If you doubt me, drive through Oklahoma, you will literally see a pair of pajamas on a billboard and a statement that says, Tornado season, a.k.a. wear something to bed. In other words, ain't nobody want to see that running to the storm shelter at 2 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) The active part of the season is to live in a tornado watch, right? Which doesn't mean that they're going to tell you where the tornado is going to hit, when it's going to come. You are supposed to watch, right? So to put... Batteries in the flashlight to get, on your, get out of your skivvies and into your PJs. The time that you do that is not when the sirens are blaring. <laughs> Sleep in your pajamas. Have your new batteries in the flashlights. Have water in your storm shelter because you just don't know when the tornado's coming. My friends, li- growing up and living in that whole area, we would just see houses pummeled. People always thought there would be a little more time. Every time you drive around storm season, you see these people. I mean, there's a, there's a funnel just getting ready to hit the ground, and these people are like grabbing everything they possibly can, running out of the house with 
arms full of stuff. Because they don't want it ripped away from them. My friends, can I just tell you, you as a Christian are in the midst of a tornado watch. Your world is about to be pummeled over by an F5 tornado. And we're sitting around in our skivvies like it could, like it will never really come. And the world laughs at us. My friends, be ready. Be aware. Be alert. Storm is a brewing. You're not always going to have that time that you think you do. Jesus tells another story just to further the point that you don't have the time that you think you do. The time to be aware, the time to be alert, the time to get prepared for Jesus to come back is now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Don't put it on your bucket list. Do it now. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about the the, uh, 10 virgins. There are 10 virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were foolish and five were wise. For the foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Now, here's what ends up happening. These These 10 virgins go, five of them with extra oil, five of them with just enough. They get there, the bridegroom delays, and they fall asleep. At midnight, which in scripture is always the time of redemption, at midnight... A trumpet sounded, and the bridegroom's on his way. The announcement has come. Okay? What do you do when you're out of oil? Well, if you prepared well, if you're being wise, then you brought the extra oil because you knew that there would be a delay, or you knew there could be a delay, and you were prepared for long faithfulness. You have a long preparedness. Like if the Lord delays 25 more years, you have the oil of faithfulness to Keep going to let the light keep burning for those 25 years. But if you're just one of those sparks, you just got just enough oil for now. And if he doesn't come, then it's going to burn out. Well, these virgins that didn't bring the extra oil realize they're in trouble. You see, wedding feasts, ceremonies were important things back then. They were some of the most important ceremonies around. And they took preparation. For you not to be ready for a wedding feast was on par for you having contempt on the bridegroom himself. We saw that in the parable where uh, the guest shows up without a wedding garment just a few chapters back. Why does he get kicked out and thrown into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? That seems rather harsh. It's not when you realize that his lack of preparation was actually contempt for the bridegroom. That these five virgins that don't prepare, they don't do what they should, that they refused to be ready shows that they have actually shown contempt on the bridegroom himself. It's just not that important. Do you realize that's essentially what they say and not bringing the extra oil? It's just not important to us. It's not urgent. Have any of you ever felt as if you just got more important things to do? to prepare for the Lord's coming. That sin issue can be dealt with later, right? That addiction can be repented of later, right? You can finally start loving your wife the way that Christ loves the church tomorrow, right? 
You see, being ready to watch, which Jesus tells us to do in this story, is to have our affections in check. To stay on top of what it is we actually love. I don't think when Jesus says, watch therefore, he's not saying, stand up and watch the sky. Right? We're not, we're not talking about all these Christians selling everything they have and moving away to some mountain where they're just going to stare at the clouds. Right? In fact, in Acts 1, they're told not to do that. Right? The disciples are just standing around. The angels are like, why are you standing here watching? So that's not what Jesus means when he says, watch. To watch and to be prepared means to stay on top of your life's affections. It's not so much about reading signs and cosmic symbols and try to do all these prophecy things that you like to discern the code and all that. That's not what watching is about. Watching is to stay on top of the affections of your heart. What is it you love? Adding to it, what is it that you love the most? If I were to ask you honestly, what is the state of your affections right now? Can I see evidence of my love for Jesus growing? An anticipation for Christ to return? That I want him more than I want anyone else. That the thought of just having him and having his peace and his rest is a greater comfort to me than anything else. Do I love Jesus so much that I actually get up off my couch, turn off my lovely TV shows, my game systems, to go serve him, to spend time with him? My friends, we're all too comfortable We all think we're ready. And yet if we do the deep, dark digging into our heart, we might find we're not as ready as we think we are. See, here's the problem. We tend to think, I believe in Jesus. Salvation comes by faith, by grace, right? And that's all that we think there is. And that's all true, and that's right. You cannot be saved by works. But let me tell you this. Your affections reveal whether or not that grace really means anything to you. I knew on my wedding day that Rachel loved me, regardless if I showed up to the wedding five minutes later, not. But by God, the grace of her love kept me from being there five minutes late. I was ready on our wedding day. I was ready in meeting her because I knew that to not be prepared is a contempt on my own bride. My friends, what are the sins that are besetting your life? What periods of selfishness, idolatry, self-centeredness, right? Isolation, friendlessness, unfriendliness, all these things that we tend to just be settled in. What are the things in your life that you know are not healthy, that you know are sinful, that you know are broken, and readiness requires you to repent and to leave those things out of love for Jesus now? You might not be as ready as you think you are. I thought I was more ready until I realized just how much I really care about man's applause. Until I realized just how much I live in fear. Until I realized just how many idolatry, uh, idols are still 
bearing down in this heart and this soul. Until I realized that those secret pockets of lust and gossip and greed and, and hatred mean that I'm, I'm, I'm like a bride with pimples and no makeup on her face. I'm not ready for the bridegroom. My friends, on our wedding day, we spend hours getting ready for that moment when we can face the one we love. And we don't do it to earn their affection. We do it as an expression of love for them. I knew on that day that my wife spent hours on her hair. There were hundreds of little braids and beads and glittery makeup. And it was, I mean, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen that I wept as she walked. I knew she didn't do any of that to earn my love and favor. I knew she did it because she loved me. My friends, sometimes we sit back on our haunches because we think, you know what? The Lord loves me. So I can, I can trust in that love and sit comfortably in my sin and in my selfishness and my idolatry. But have we ever thought that in doing so, we're actually being the unloving bride that is not getting ready for the bridegroom? That maybe it's not a matter of whether or not Jesus loves us. Maybe the real issue is, do we love Jesus enough to get ready now? To anticipate his coming, to be motivated. I talk with young guys all the time. One of the biggest things we talk about is a lack of motivation. My friends, you cannot get more motivated unless you know that your life is marching to meeting Christ. Your life is culminating in that day when you see him face to face. No, you don't need to fear condemnation. But my goodness, if we truly understood who it is and what he's done that's coming to meet us, we would live every single moment getting ready just to please him. It should be our heart's cry. God, let me today be just a little more ready so that if Jesus comes back this afternoon, he'll just find me a little more pleasing. We are justified by faith through grace in Christ, which means that our position, our status as the bride is secure in Jesus alone. It's about him and not about us. The implication of that, though, is that should motivate us to be ready. When such an amazing bridegroom has loved such an unworthy bride, how ungracious, how ungrateful, how unworthy is it for that bride to then sit on her haunches and say, then let him carry me to the altar. My friends, have a ready heart. Be repentant. Don't just sit back saying, yeah, I know I got a few sins. I know I got a few problems. I know I've got issues. No, Ready yourself. Prepare him room for when he comes. Second, so you're to be ready, but you're also stay productive. That's the, that's the point of the next set of parables. At Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51, Jesus asked this question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? So he's going to give an analogy of a servant that's been put in charge. Of, he's going to give the analogy of a ranch hand, essentially, right? So the boss entrusts the ranch hand to take care of the household and to feed, to feed people at the right time, to make sure that things are going the way they should be. Who then is the faithful and wise servant 
whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. In short, the faithful and wise master did what the master commissioned him to do. He was faithful in doing it. The master called him to feed. And what did he do? He fed. To care. What did he do? He cared. Now he gives a flip side to that story. Let's just imagine an alternate universe and we see a wicked servant in place of a wise servant. The wicked servant sees that his master's delayed. He's not coming back for a while. So instead he decides to beat the fellow servants and he gorges himself on the finest things in the castle. Jesus says the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces. Whoa. And put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My friends, it sounds absolutely harsh, doesn't it? I mean, can you, would it, do any of you agree with the master's response? I mean, here's a master who trusts his servant to feed and care for the people. And instead of caring and feeding them, I mean, he gives them the highest level of trust, right? He, let's just say that his kids are there. And he finds the servant beating them and eating the food off of their plates. I think putting it in that light is like, okay, if you hired a babysitter and you walked into the door and the babysitter was punching your kid in the face, and taking their dinner. <laughs> I don't think cutting in pieces would even be your, that, that would be like a moderate response for some of us. Now that sounds atrocious, right? Nobody surely does that in this day and age. My friends, I hate to tell you this. Christians beat Christians in the church all the time. Some of you, and many of you know, people who pummel others in sheer mercilessness. I mean, it's this, it's this attitude, like nobody else is good enough. Nobody else is doing what they should. They beat them down. They make them feel inferior. They're superior. So it's this dominant type of personality that wants everyone else to feel a little less intelligent, a little less committed, a little less uh, faithful. They just pummel them in this gracelessness. And at the same time, they don't really do anything themselves. They don't feed. They get fed. My friends, I think this is the clearest description of Christian consumerism I've ever seen in the Bible. Modern people, especially, tend to have a view of Christianity in the church that is self-serving. And if we're honest, self-indulgent. It's me-centered Christianity. Our Lord commissioned us to make disciples, to love others, to be crucified, to have such a love for other people that it could be visibly comparable to his cross. When was the last time we loved someone like that? And yet, how many of us that proclaim to be Christians just beat the tar out of others around us? Behind their backs? We just beat them up, those unfaithful people. 
Boy, we backbite, we tear, we tear to shreds, and we're absolutely merciless in the way that we do so. Those are God's kids that you're beating on. The consumerism steps in when people begin to say, these people are here for me, not me for them. I'm here for what the church can do for me, not what I can do for the people that are here. My friends, I've been a pastor in China, and I've been a pastor in America. And I know we get sick of me sharing stories from that, but there's a vast difference. A vast difference. Some of you are about to go to Malawi And you're going to see a vast difference in the culture of the church. Does this sound familiar? The church doesn't have a hospitality hospitality program. So I'm going to go somewhere where they'll show hospitality. No one called me during COVID. But then you ask the question, but did you call anyone? I've been here for six years. I haven't quite gotten, um, what do they call it when teachers get a certain point where they can't get fired? I haven't gotten that, whatever that's called. Tenure? I haven't gotten tenure yet. But I think it's important enough to call it out that I'm going to risk my tenure. No one's reached out to me. No one's called me. No one's checked in on me. Have you checked in on somebody? Have you called They didn't come to my party. Okay, did you go to theirs when they invited you to theirs? Somebody should do something about the evangelism of the church because our church isn't evangelistic enough. Great. Have you shared the gospel with your neighbor this week? Tell me who you have actively shared the gospel with. Our churches just don't pray enough. We're supposed to be a prayer-centered people. Why then do we only have 20 people coming to the prayer gatherings? My friends, there is room for hurting people. There are people in this, in this church and in churches all over the place that are hurting, are broken, cannot get out, and desperately need someone to reach to them. I, I, I'm, I've never seen it in my lifetime. Of course, I'm young, but there's a massive shifting in churches right now. I've, I've got brothers in Ovilla. I've got brothers um, in the whole DFW area. And one of the most discouraging things that I hear from them, and I, and I have experienced it myself, is this great shifting. It's lots of people in their church disappointed with the way they handled COVID and the politics and all the racial stuff. And so what are they going to do? Well, now that church is open, time to move. There's all these problems that we saw and time to move. So we have this great shifting. And when, when you, you hear from them, it's like, okay, well, what's the number one complaint people have? Like, what are they complaining about? No one reaches out to me anymore. I come back to church and I don't know anyone. Do you know how many times I, I've heard that as a pastor? I don't know anyone anymore. Great. Have you said hi to someone? There are 200 people sitting in the room. I'm not an extrovert. That's why you don't know anyone. Because you don't say hi. Because you think you have to be an extrovert to know someone. You don't. You have to be a loving, other-centered person. That's it. You can be a flaming introvert all you want. 
That sounded really bad, didn't it? I don't know what I said about Brandon. I'm sorry, Brandon. (laughs) But still be other-centered. Still be other-centered. That moves to people. My friends, we get stuck in this thought that hospitality is a particular gifting for certain people. And that may be true. And yet the command to be hospitable applies to all. The command to welcome others and to be loving to the strangers applies to all. My friends, if, 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 if we're debating over the immigration issue, but we never say hi to strangers that walk in our church, you don't quite care about the commands of welcoming strangers. Do you see that? Love the people that are in front of you, not the people that are 100 miles away from you first. We get it backwards. Love the people right here in this room that walk through this door and invite them to come to your table. Consumers consume. That's why they're called consumers. And they do not produce. They eat the fruit, but they don't plow the fields. Sometimes they expect you to hold the apple up to their mouth. Consumers want friends to show them love. I just, I feel so lonely. I don't have any friends. Great. Have you been friendly? I don't mean to push the blame back on you. The church has a terrible problem with being friendly. Churches all across the United States are self-centered, cliquish people. That's a problem, but it's a self-fulfilling problem because the people who lament about it the most also are self-centered, cliquish people. My friends, if you want friends, be a friend. You want to be stirred up spiritually. Have spiritual conversations. Be productive. I got tired of making excuses for myself. Man. I got to a point where I just, I don't have any friends. I don't know who to trust. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. And then I'm finally like, that gummit, what am I doing? Now Clint and I have coffee every Thursday. I can't seem to get rid of him. <laughs> it goes both ways, right, Clint? <laughs> My friends, instead of lamenting that no one's called me to coffee, you know what? You know what's funny is I'm a pastor, okay? And I hear all the time, well, nobody invites me to coffee. Very few people actually invite me to coffee. Very few people actually call the pastor when he's sick. (laughs) But I'm not here for you to invite me to coffee. I'm here to pour the cup of coffee for you. Now, can you imagine if everybody had that mentality? Guess who all gets coffee? Everybody gets coffee. Which is a really, that, that brings us really close to the kingdom. First, everybody hears the gospel and everybody has coffee. My friends, we just get to this mentality that we wait and we sit and we miss out on the low-hanging fruit that God has for us right then and there to be productive. That's the point of the parable of the talents. The master gives these talents, not meaning like talents as in he gives to one the ability to tap dance. That's not what a talent is. Talents is like money in this case in the parable. 
He gives the one five talents, one two talents, and the last servant he gives one talent. Now the first and the second servant go and they make money. They're productive. They make five more talents and two more talents. And guess what? They are equally commended. Both of them here, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you realize that the one that only made two extra talents, that has four talents, gets the same commendation as the one that made ten? Because it's not about how much one is doing, it's about the fact that they're doing something. Can I just say that? Some of you may not be able to do as much as somebody else, but are you doing anything? You see, the one with the one talent went and dug it in the ground and did nothing. And he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, did, where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what is yours. And then the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. My friends, are we productive people? Well, well, yeah, I go to my Bible study every Tuesday. Okay, that's not the kind of productivity we're talking about here. We're talking about, can you act, if I were to ask you, how have you loved Jesus and others in practical ways over the last week? Have you been productive? I, I, I say this from the text. It's not as hard as we think it is. We tend to overcomplicate this and overcomplicate faithfulness. Jesus gives a final analogy of the great separation that's to come. He's going to separate those on the right and those on the left. And those on the right, he's going to say, come, you are, who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, he's not lessening the fact that they're saved by grace, but he is going to say evidences that they truly are those who are blessed of the Father. You want to know what the evidence is that they go on that side? They give food. They give a drink. They welcome the stranger. They clothe someone who's naked. And they visit the sick in prison. My friends, do you want to know whether you're being productive or not? Answer this one question. When was the last time you handed a glass of water to someone thirsty? It might have been your bridge ladies around the table. But to get up from the table and say, can I make you a glass of water? That is a Christ-centered service. You know, we tend to think that God's going to remember all these big things that we've done. Those times that we taught the Sunday school class, those times that we preached behind the pulpit, all the big money that we give, the things that get the greatest focus in the kingdom of God are things you may not even remember doing. Simple acts. That time that somebody came in and they were scared of meeting new people and you crossed the room to welcome them like Christ would to his home. Those times that you knew that somebody had lost someone that they loved and somebody really should call them and you picked up the phone. Those times, the winter storm. I've heard this before. Why don't we have a door-to-door ministry? Why don't we go knocking on? Well, we should. We had one. It was called the winter apocalypse of 2021. We literally went door-to-door Were you productive? My friends, it's not about our works or how much we've done or what we do even. It's that we're doing things for the Lord. Are you a productive 
faithful Christian. Hand a glass of water to someone. Hand a jacket, hand a coat, hand some food. Those are the faithful daily practical kindnesses that God rewards and honors. If I think my greatest jewel in heaven is because of what I do up here, but I never do anything down here, I never pour the cups of coffee. My friends, I'm duping myself into thinking that I'm a productive Christian. Be ready. Watch your affections of your heart and be productive. Actually love God and his people. Don't just say that. Yes, I love them. Actually do it. If you say that you love them, how? Tell me how you have done it. Answer that question. When was the last time you left your house and did something for the Lord? It's very simple faithfulness. When was the last time you opened your door, opened your table, opened your house, opened your fridge, poured a glass of water for someone else? How have you been productive? If you can't answer that, you might not have been productive as you thought you were. Be productive, faithful Christians. And let's face it. Jesus doesn't ask us to do something he himself hasn't done, has he? I mean, he came ultimately with the cup and said, drink from this and you'll never thirst again. He hands out his own flesh and says, this is the bread that if you eat from, you will forever be satisfied. He's the one that stoops down to serve. And he stooped down and he took the cross and he served us by carrying the cross for us and dying for our sins, even though we didn't deserve it. We were the ultimate insurrectionist and the king died for us, was buried and rose again. And he was productive in making disciples. My friends, it's simple. Love God, love others, make disciples. That is what it means to be a ready and productive Christian. And I invite you into that. Today we get to celebrate communion. And as we celebrate communion, we're going to contemplate long and hard about how Christ rose from the table and handed us the bread. How Christ, as the servant, took on the weight, the, the, the role of a waiter and handed us the cup so that we could have peace with God. Now I want to invite you into a time of repentance to think about that. My friends, there's grace. You're not going to be judged for how much you do, whether you're the five-talent guy or the two-talent guy. But I do think we have to be honest with the truth that we will be judged for whether we're productive or not. Let's be faithful in what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that you make us ready and productive people. Father, I publicly repent now of my overestimation of my productivity and my overestimation of my readiness. I pray that you will help me now to ready my heart by stirring up affections for you and asking you, Lord, to stir up affections for you. Lord, that I will repent of idolatry and the things that I love dearest so that I can love you the most. God, I pray that you make us productive people. Father, we're concerned with doing a lot, but may we be concerned with preparing ourselves and doing the things that honors you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.